Now we want you to reveal to us your courage and strength of will. What is it you hope to prove? If my death is to have any meaning, at least tell me what I'm dying for. Bridge to all decks. It is time for a brand new Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I originally had decided to do this entire podcast through interpretive dance and facial expressions. And yet then I decided that actually speaking might make this thing work a little bit better. Well, I would have actually liked to have seen that. That would have been a very bold move for you, Steve, to do our deep dive of the empath in that way. But yes, the the dialogue is always better when doing a deep dive on the original series. And, And the empath is an episode that I have always loved And I assumed that it was a beloved episode or at least a well-liked episode. But to my surprise in recent years with Facebook and with all the other Star Trek Facebook groups, to see people posting things and, and comments about how they don't like the empath. What is your take on the empath? This is a really weird one because I don't think it's a bad episode. I've never looked forward to watching it. I've always has made me, so I'm sort of maybe kind of going to split the difference here and go, this is an interesting episode. And it was actually even more interesting on this rewatch, I think with all sorts of interesting ideas and all sorts of very interesting filmmaking going on, but it's not an episode I look forward to at all, you know? Yeah. So I kind of am in the, I'm in the middle on it. I think I, I'm, I'm a, I'm sort of a, uh, in the middle, but on the side of, I really do like the episode. And even though it's not one that I go back and watch to as frequently as like, let's say balance of terror or city or mirror, mirror or doomsday, it's one that I have gone back to watch, uh, in, in recent times even. And even so, of course, after our conversations, these last year and a half on enterprise incidents, I did have a a revelation of sorts about the empath and I will say what that is when we get to that point. And it is a, it is a, it is a revelation that is very complimentary to this episode. One that, that, that makes me like it more. And like you said, it is a, it's a weird episode. It's an unusual episode. The way it's shot is very different. I think they, they really did like with Spectre of the gun. They really took advantage of the, the cut budget to make make more less mean more and less feel like more. I think that's one of the benefits of this episode. Uh, it is directed by John Ehrman. It is his first episode and his last episode of Star Trek hmm. that he directed. And I'm just going to tease this now, Steve. When you hear what John Ehrman said about his time directing The Empath for Star Trek, it is no wonder who never came back. And uh, he was extremely honest about his assessment of his time directing The Empath, which was shot between July 25th and August 2nd, 1968. It went one day over schedule, so it was shot for seven days. It was the fifth, 64th episode to film, but it was the 67th episode to air, and it did air on December 6th, 1968. Even with all of the minimalist setting, with the, the the black you know stage that almost felt like a stage play, it still went slightly over budget, costing one hundred eighty one thousand dollars, 
uh, and making it about $3,500 over budget. The score was composed by George Dunning. He recorded his score on September 6th, 1968, the same day that he recorded his score for Is There in Truth No Beauty? And with the empath, that marks George Dunning's last score mm-hmm. for Star Trek. And Dunning himself said that next to Metamorphosis, the empath, his score for the empath is his second favorite of his Trek scores. As I mentioned, John Ehrman directing for the first time, it was supposed to be directed by John Meredith Lucas, who directed, as you know, uh, Alan of Troyes, The Enterprise Incident, and The Ultimate Computer. And he was supposed to follow the empath with For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. But because he went over schedule on both Alan of Troyes and Enterprise Incident, Fred Freiberger decided to go with another director who had a better reputation for filming fast. And mm-hmm. John Ehrman is a legend in television. He is an Emmy winner for limited series for directing Who Will Love My Children. He was nominated for another nine Emmy nominations, Steve, including seminal sh- uh, series like Roots and An Early Frost. He mm-hmm. also directed My Favorite Martian, That Girl, and Marcus Welby, M.D., so here's the thing, Steve, when you look back on the first and second season of Star Trek, you have screenwriters that are legends in science fiction, like like Richard Matheson, George Clayton Johnson. And with Star Trek season three, you're getting a lot of first time screenwriters who never wrote for anything else ever again. Oh, wow. And, you know, yeah. And Joyce Muscat is another screenwriter, her only produced teleplay is for the empath. Gene mm-hmm. Roddenberry loved that another woman was writing a screenplay for Star Trek. And Muscat actually got her idea from the movie When Worlds Collide. Did you ever see that? No, I never have. So the uh, When Worlds Collide, so the Earth is doomed because another planet is on a collision course with it. So they build these spaceships to save the human race. The human race can only be saved by limiting who gets to go on the spaceship? So who chooses the survivors? That was a jumping off point for Joyce Muscat to launch into the empath. And because Muscat was not a member of the Writers Guild, what does that mean? She was cheap. Right. <laughs> she was cheap. Uh, but she wrote her spec script, which was called The Answerer, on, uh, in April of 1968. Her story outline came in on April 26th. Arthur Singer uh, did a revised outline when it was changed to the empath on May 7th. And then Joyce Muscat did a second draft teleplay on June 21st. Arthur Singer did a rewrite, his final draft teleplay on July 22nd. And then Fred Freiberger did a script polish between July 23rd, 24th, and 25th. So... Uh, I, but again, I, I, I really like this episode a lot and, uh, I, I just think that it's one, especially because of the music score that has really, really stuck out with me. It's, it is definitely a unique episode. Like there's just no, you know, I think like Spectre of the Gun, it's just, it is its own thing. And I do admire Star Trek for going out and 
doing things that are more experimental. You know what I mean? Sure. And this sure. certainly falls into this category. Uh, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world? Let's do it. So, uh, as you said, it's filmed between July 25th and August 2nd in 1968. On the 28th in China, Mao Zedong begins phasing out the Red Guard. And this is sort of the beginning of the end of the most violent parts of the Cultural Revolution happening in China. On the 29th of July, a papal, a papal encyclical was issued by the Vatican that makes very clear their position uh, prohibiting all forms of birth control or contraception other than abstinence in 1968. Mm -hmm. There was a volcanic eruption in Costa Rica that killed 87 people. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about the Ba'ath Party's coup in Iraq. And at this point, the leader of the Ba'ath Party, who's Ahmet Hassan Abakir, he consolidates his power. And what does that mean? It means all a whole bunch of the allies that they used in order to take over the government he wipes out a bunch of those allies. Wow. And you know who the guy who was assisting him in planning all of this consolidation of power? Give me, give me, tell me who. 31-year-old Saddam Hussein. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and here is one for you. Now, again, when I say it's for you, you have a general idea of the direction. This one is a bit obscure, but this is on July 29th, 1968. There was a Beatles event. July. Oh, oh, Mad Day Out. No, I actually, what is Mad Day Out? I don't know what that is. Mad Day Out. So uh, in July of 1968, I thought I thought it was uh, this date in July uh, uh, or it could uh, be, by the way. I don't know. because. Yeah. So so, you know, as you know, the Beatles, they changed their appearance so many times, you know, from the mop tops to the Sergeant Pepper. And now by 1968, by this time in 1968, they were deep into the recording of the White Album. So they needed new publicity shots ah. because they didn't look anything like they did, you know, with right. those colorful suits and Sgt. Pepper. So they went around London and they took a ton, a ton of brand new publicity shots. And uh, that's what happened. I think it was around this time. Uh, definitely happened over the summer uh, of 1968, but that's not what you're referring to. No, no. What, what I had, and this is what I said, this one's pretty, fairly obscure, but uh, it was the day the Apple Boutique closed. Oh, oh. And that was also when they closed the boutique and everybody just went in and took what they wanted and it like <laughs> totally gutted the place. <laughs> um, on July 31st, Charles Schultz added the character of Franklin to Peanuts. And he had spent a long time debating whether or not to add an African-American character because he said he didn't want to patronize his Negro friends like he wanted. But then he finally received uh, he had received a bunch of letters, including one from a teacher in Sherman Oaks, California, who said it's basically she didn't use these words, but words we hear a lot today of representation matters. And so he adds the character of Franklin to Peanuts and immediately Southern newspaper editors said, look, it's okay for you to have this Negro, but please don't put him in schools with the other kids. Whoa. Uh, yeah, because wow. they're still, they're pushing for segregation. Right. Mm. And so they don't want that in the newspaper. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, this one's weird. On August 2nd, a suicidal pilot stole a Cessna 180 and flew it into the tallest building in Las Vegas, which was the 30-story landmark hotel at the time. Wreckage fell all over the, uh, the Vegas Convention Center, and nobody was injured except for the pilot who was killed. Was, was it uh, an accident? No, no. He's committing. This is how he committed suicide. Wow. That's yeah. dramatic. 
Yeah, and uh, and also on the same day, Sirhan Sirhan pleaded not guilty to the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, shall we enter the empath? Yes, one last thought about the empath, uh, and I, I never realized this, but the empath was one of four original Star Trek episodes that were banned by the BBC in the United Kingdom until the early 90s. Hmm. reason why it was banned, along with Whom Gods Destroy, Plato's Stepchildren, and Miri, for depicting, quote, unpleasant subjects of madness, torture, sadism, and disease. So for, you know, almost three decades, these four Star Trek episodes did not air on the BBC in the UK because they were too disturbing. And I got to say, Plato's Stepchildren, when we get to that episode, I agree. It is disturbing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you're going to, I mean, those aren't the worst four to have missed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like you, cause you mentioned other ones. I know that like, I think the enemy within was one that didn't air a whole bunch. There were a few other ones where I was like, Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Such good episodes or even like bread and circuses. But you know, if you missed out on, you know, a couple of these, it's not terrible. It's okay. Yeah. You're not yeah. missing much. Yeah. <laughs> What's weird watching this teaser is that it just reminds me of And the Children Shall Lead in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, we're beaming down to this planet. There's some sort of research station. We hear that this star system is about to go supernova. And we go into, like, the research lab. I like that there's a spiral staircase. That's a nice little bit of design. Yes. Apparently, these instruments have not been recently used. They blow the dust, and it's like that's not a couple of months of dust. That's like years. <laughs> years. Of dust. Well, well, you're right uh, about the the opening of this episode. In addition to the fact that they're beaming down to a research station, just like they did with uh, with and the Children Shall Lead, it's just the three of them, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Right. And you know they're not getting any word from the people from those two people who were at the station. Uh, but yet they're not they're not bringing down any security people. And the other thing is that. The star, uh, the Menaran star system, the star is about to go nova, much like Beta Niobe uh, will about to go nova in the second to the last episode of Star mm. Trek, which is all our yesterdays. Um, and we get a call from Scotty that there's some huge cosmic rays and that the ship is in danger. And Scotty's like, well, let me beam you up. And they go, no, no, we're fine here. The atmosphere will protect us. You go away. So that So the Enterprise heads off. And now we're going to check and see if we can figure out what happened to these researchers. We find a little tape, which Spock puts in. And the first thing we see is in the same location where we are right now, we see the researchers basically (laughs) bitching about how long they've been stuck here. So the two researchers here are Link and Ozaba. Link is played by Jason Wingreen and Ozaba is played by Davis Roberts. And one thing I never thought about, Steve, after all these years, all these decades of watching The Empath, like you pointed out about how the beginning was so similar to And the Children Shall Lead, another episode that it actually is somewhat similar to, even though the way it plays out is very, very different, is The Naked Time. Because this research station was established so that they could observe the star as it goes nova. And in the beginning of the naked time when they go to the research station on the planet Psi 2000, that station was, was built to observe the disintegration of that planet. So, so maybe they shouldn't do that. (laughs) I would think you got to be real clear about your travel plans. Like, okay, I'll go to the planet that's going to be destroyed or the star that's going to be supernova, but you're going to pick me up, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) And then suddenly there's like an earthquake. 
deep places of the earth. Psalm 95, verse 4. The rest of the line is the heights of the mountains are his also. And then this next sequence is so odd because we we watch them. There's been this earthquake and then we hear this high pitched whine and it feels like the high pitched whine hits one of them first. And then when it hits you, then you're about to disappear, which is what happens. So one disappears. Then the other one is like trying to get up those spiral staircase and he disappears. Yeah. And what's weird is, is then the whine continues and it's basically like, oh, this isn't tape now. This is live. They're hearing it. It's an odd kind of transition. You're right. As soon as they disappear, McCoy says, what happened to them? And it's almost like they're watching and they're hearing the sound through the monitor. Now they're hearing it. Where's that sound coming from? Five. Can you pinpoint it? Negative, Captain. It doesn't register. I think this even today, Steve, is a really chilling teaser, the way they disappear one by one. Yeah, it is. It's weird. And 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 it's definitely never goes really explained exactly what happens here. I also do <laughs> think it's interesting that Kirk is not only always going to be last, but it's always going to take longer with him. Yeah. It, it's funny. I was acting in a play years and years and years ago. It was like the one of the first sort of semi-professional plays I was in and it was a cast of like 12 people in an ensemble and there was this scene where all of us were on stage and we all had a line and and the director wanted us to go really fast so it went line 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 around the room there was this one person who always took a really long pause before she delivered her line and so what happened was it went line 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 (laughs) yeah which character do you think looked like the most important person on the stage the person who took the big pause. Yeah. And so, and it just makes me go like, oh, Shatner is always like, no, no, it's going to take a little bit longer with me. You know, the captain's going to be the last to go and it's going to, and not only is he the last to go, but his disappearance is far more dramatic. Yes. Because he tries to go up the spiral staircase. And this is what makes, makes this teaser more chilling is that he's like halfway up. And then there's another rumble as a reminder that this planet, the star system, is in its final moments. And then he falls back and disappears. Now, you, you pointed out how they disappeared one by one. And of course, you know, Kirk was last. I mean, he's the captain. Of course, he's going to be last. But in the early version of this teleplay, the three of them disappeared at the same time. Mm. And they disappeared from the turbo lift of the Enterprise. And Bob Justman said, you know, we just kind of had our our landing party disappear from the Enterprise and Gamesters of Triskelion. Let's move the action down to the planet and have them disappear there where there is, you know, the Enterprise is not available because they've, they've left orbit. So that was Bob Justman's suggestion. And what he suggested was the version that was actually shot. I go back and forth about that one, which, yeah. which way is better, partially because, again, this goes to they wouldn't have gone over budget if they had done it from the turbo lift. It's a whole other set. It's a whole other location you didn't need to build. Well, that's true. That's a good point. You know? But that is the end of our teasers. They've all disappeared. We're back in act one and we're in this really high angle top down shot, which is, you know, the first of our unusual sort of shots that we have to tell this story. And the uh, title, The Empath, is the only time that we see the title of an original series Star Trek episode on just complete black. And I Mm -hmm. I agree. I I think there are a lot of really interesting and dynamic camera directing choices 
starting with this one where it starts on the black with the title of the episode. And then you see the three of them lying on the ground and the camera like pans way back and then they start to get up. And this is still Jerry Finnerman, right? This so glad you brought that up, Steve, because yes, this is Jerry Finnerman, but this is Jerry Finnerman's last episode. It's his last episode of Star Trek. And you and I, I think on an episode by episode basis, have sung the praises of Jerry Finnerman because he shot every episode from the Corbomite Maneuver, which was the first episode shot for the first season, all the way through to the Empath, with the exception of By Any Other Name, which he had to miss because he was he was ill that week. But his look of Star Trek defined the look of that show. Uh, no other show, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or drama or whatever, no other show has looked like that. Not before, certainly not before, and not even since. Everything is just shot. But the way that Finnerman shot that show was just absolutely gorgeous. And from this point forward, starting with the next episode, The Tholian Web, camera operator Al Francis took over as the new director of photography. It's obviously, I'm really sad that Jerry Finnerman is going away. I mean, he's been with us from the very beginning and such an important, critical part of the look of the show. But I actually think it's kind of cool if you're going to go away that this is the episode you go away on as a cinematographer because more than any other episode in Star Trek, the environment is created by light. Like they are walking in and out of the shadows. There's no sense of a location because we're just in this black space that has you know, some props and some set decorating, some some furniture and stuff in it. But we constantly are just, there's a pool of light and they move into the shadow and then they move into the light. That's all created by the cinematography. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. It is, it is a, it's one of the reasons I've always really, really liked this episode is because of the lighting. Um, and we hear that we're 121 meters, you know, beneath the surface and we're walking around uh, looking and we, you know, notice that Kirk's got a nasty cut on his head and they pick up a life sign. One of the missing scientists? Negative. Although humanoid, it is definitely not Homo sapiens. As Kirk and Spock and McCoy are walking through the darkness and the camera pans back and you see Kirk, Spock and McCoy walking and then the light comes on. And there we see a woman on the platform who we will later name Jen. Played by Catherine Hayes. Catherine Hayes was recommended for this episode by director John Ehrman. So score to John Irma for picking the right person to play Jem. I thought that she was absolutely fantastic. She was in movies like Ladybug, Ladybug, and the film Counterpoint with Charlton Heston. On TV, she was on shows like Bonanza, The Man from Uncle, Mannix, Night Gallery, and she played the character of Kim Hughes on As the World Turns from 1972 until 2010, when she retired, she was married three times. And I only bring this up because her second husband was actor Glenn Ford. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I would think that Jem and her performance and the sort of stylized, very dancey thing is one of the divisive elements of the empath. Why do you that, say that? Well, I, I was funny. I was thinking about, uh, obviously, you know, the movie West Side Story, both versions of it. In, if you watch West Side Story, in the prologue, 
Robert Wise in the original version does a beautiful job of introducing you to the fact that these gang members at this time express themselves through dance and they fight through dance. And there's just a slow sort of introduction to the lang- dance language of the movie. And that is you're in or you're out. You have to accept that this is how these people, you know, these tough gang members are going to do, you know, grand jetés or whatever that, that you have to accept it. If you don't accept it, you're not going to accept West Side Story. Right. I think the same is true with the empath, which is that her just from the moment she sits up, she is doing it in this dancey theatrical way. Yeah. And I am mixed on it. I there are times where I like it. There are times where I don't. And I feel like they made this choice of like, well, she doesn't speak. And so she expresses herself with dance. And, and, and the one I was thinking of, by the way, um, have you do you watch the boys? Uh, I watched the first season. Yeah. Boys is really good. It yeah, is. It, uh, yeah. it is a lot of a lot. But there's uh-huh. the Karen. Uh, the, there's the deaf character who's Karen Fukuhara is the actress. And she does this incredible job of communicating so much through not being able to use words through gesture, through facial expression, through all that stuff. And I think Jem kind of works some of the time. And some of the time I just go, this is some silly dance moves that they just kind of added to make it theatrical, you know? Yeah, I I see your point. And, you know, that could be one of the reasons why the empath has gotten such mixed and even polarized sort of reactions over these years. But I always went with it. I just thought it was a great way to immediately – from from the very first moment that Jem that the character was introduced, you're already establishing her as someone who is very different, very mm-hmm. alien. And it was actually Bob Justman who suggested this way that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy meet her, because he 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 described Jem, Bob Justman described Jem in a memo as quote gentle and pure and good and sweet. And virginal and keeping a kosher house. <laughs> keeping a kosher house. Yes. <laughs> well, but this is okay. So this is this is a episode where the ideas to me are more interesting than what's it doesn't all work like for me. And so if you accept some of the weirdness, the ideas are really interesting. And one of the ideas is the the basic idea, let's just spoil it, is there are these guys, the Vians who are trying to teach Jem to be compassionate in order to determine whether or not they can save her planet, right? Right. That's Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. basic idea. The description you just gave from Bob Justman is exactly how I see Jem. Mm -hmm. Well, that description is already compassionate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but the the elegance in which which we're introduced to Jem, that doesn't mean, you know, I, I mean, I think that she's innocent and she's naive, you know, Uh, but that doesn't mean immediately that, that she's compassionate. She's might be a little too innocent and will come across as selfless, uh, or rather selfish, selfish, uh, too selfish to sacrifice herself for what's to come. So, so what I would say, and this is sort of like a basic, a, a basic screenwriting fundamentals. If like your idea is I need to have a character change. Well, then you have to show them not being what they're going to change into. I so Bailey has to be afraid and uh, not want to be around the unknown in order for him to find courage and then face the unknown in the Corbinite maneuver. That's we, never, we never see her selfish. We don't, the very first action she does is heal Kirk. Well, it's true. 
That's you true. know, right. His, his, the way she heals him, he's just got this little cut in his head. Sure. It's far different from the way she has to Absolutely. save him after he's, he and McCoy are tortured by the Vines. Absolutely. But they don't introduce her as someone with a, an emotional deficit. You know what I mean? She seems really sweet. That's completely how she agree. Seems. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. She's a mute gem. No vocal cords. Not even vestigials. And I don't think it's a pathological condition. Explain. Well, she appears to be perfectly healthy. For the other, her lack of vocal cords could be physiologically normal for her species, whatever that is. A race of mutes. You know, I like when McCoy, you know, there. he says to her, Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to call her Jem. Jem, Doctor? Well, that's better than hey, you. <laughs> but at that moment, you know, Kirk is like, I want to know why we're here. And she knows. And mm-hmm. just at that moment, when he says she knows, there you have the appearance just showing up with a flash of light. The Vians. The Vians are played by Willard Sage and Alan Bergman. And even though they are not called by their individual names, Steve, if you watch the ending credits, they actually did have names. And in the screenplay, they had names. So Mm -hmm. Fan was played by Willard Sage, who was on TV with Maverick, Playhouse 90, The Outer Limits, Gunsmoke, Death Valley Days, and Hogan's Heroes. And then Alan Bergman... As an actor, he was on TV shows like Bonanza, Ironside, Mannix, and Mission Impossible. But then he pivoted to directing, and he directed multiple episodes of iconic comedy classics like Barney Miller, Family Ties, and Night Court. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like them both. I think they're both I, – I, I think they're – and to me, like, they've always been sort of Tolosan's light, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely, they are. And there's even, they even create an allusion to, to yeah. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy at one point. Yeah, they are very Tolosian like. I've always felt that way too. Well, it's almost, you know, it's funny to think about it. I hadn't thought about it until we just got here, but like the, it's almost like because the Tolosians went too far, right? They went too far into the world of intellect until their lives became totally empty. Mm-hmm. And it, you could say that Kirk at the end, by what he convinces them of, takes them off of the path. Like, they could become Telosians. Do you know what I mean? Certainly. Down the line. Certainly. That's a really good point. I, I, I agree with you. I, I thought that the uh, Willard Sage and Alec Bourbon gave their performances were right on point because they were restrained. You know, they didn't go over the top with, like, you know, playing the villain. And their menace was because because of their restrained performance. So I, I still think yeah. that at least for most of this episode until, you know, the big reveal, that the Vians are – are very scary, scary characters. And uh, I like that Kirk starts to introduce himself and they're like, yeah, we know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Since you already know who we are, you must also know that we come in peace. Our prime directive specifically prohibits us from any interference. And right when they say that, phasers disappear. And then at that same moment, the three of them are enveloped in a force field in which they cannot move, the harder they try to move, the stronger the force field becomes. And while the three of them are stuck in this force field, the Vians go over to to Jem, and they are performing something on her with their device, and she's clearly uncomfortable and in pain. And I think George Dunning's score 
of this episode is really dynamic, fully realized. You know, you've got this menace, and then it immediately switches to just a ethereal, sublimely beautiful theme for Jem, which is very effective, just in the same way that George Dunning's score for Metamorphosis conveys a lot of drama and excitement and suspense. And then when it switches to the scenes with a companion, it is just gorgeous. And then the Vians disappear and the force field is gone and our guys kind of collapse. Did they hurt you? And this is and this is really the first time you're hearing Jem's theme. That that mm. gorgeous, that really, really beautiful, sublime score. Uh, because immediately Jem can can sense and feel the pain in Kirk just from this head wound. And I love the way that they do this, that she touches him, the little wound disappears, it appears on her head, and then slowly fades off of her head. The wound is completely healed. It fits Jim. She must be an empath. This always weirded me out because he's like, oh, she's like a perfect empath and that she can take your pain away and heal you. And for years, I thought that's what an empath meant. Yeah, but that's not, in fact, what the term empath means. It has nothing to do with healing. You know? <laughs> right, it doesn't. Um, he is not healing. <laughs> um, and at this moment, Spock has detected something on his tricorder, that there's some sort of electronically sophisticated devices that he didn't see before. And they go, OK, well, let's go check that out. And they walk off again. I love that they're really just walking in the same space. You know what yeah, I mean? They they're not going from one place to another. They're just, they walk a little bit through a shadow and then they turn around and walk to another thing that they've redressed in the same space. I'm sure. Because. Oh yeah. 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 This is all on stage 10. And yeah. I, I just think that this, this whole setup, not only does it make it feel like an actual stage play, which yeah. made it actually, you know, this is one of the episodes, Steve, that when I was a kid, I recorded it on my tape recorder. Mm. And you know what? You see what the episode actually is like. It actually works perfectly as an audio recording. It's like it's almost like a podcast episode of Star Trek, the original series, because it just is a stage play. But the surreal setting with the the black set, it just it just really does wonders and straightens strengthens the surreal feel of this episode. And we come into this new space. Spock, come here. And the camera pulls back, and there we see the two researchers from the beginning of the episode now dead in these display tubes. Well, it's, and that's a chilling end to Act 1 because mm -hmm. they're, they're not just like standing there or lying dead. They're frozen in the moment when they disappeared, basically. And whatever did happen to them to kill them, to leave them like this, it looks like it was really painful. And that's the end of Act 1. We come back in Act 2. And I think they should have had this at the end of Act 1, which is that because the next thing they see is that there's three empty tubes, which eat each of our main characters' names on them. I think that should have been at the end of Act 1. Yeah, yeah, sure. But um, it's, it's definitely a, an, an effective beginning to Act 2. <laughs> and then one of our Vians appears. I found our missing men. Dead. Another one of your experiments. You're wrong. Their own imperfections killed them. So let me ask you this. Yes. What does this mean? Their imperfections killed them. They were not fit subjects. That I always wondered what that meant because as the episode progresses, when we see the torture that happens, particularly with Kirk and McCoy, and here's Lyle saying their own imperfections killed them. So when you see Kirk and McCoy getting tortured, 
you're not seeing anything physical hit their bodies. You're not seeing any, any sort of energy force hit their bodies. So because this little device that they're using with their hands, it's established later that it's not a mechanical device, that it is connected to the person using right. it. So, and this is a real great question, Steve, because I think by you asking this question, I'm realizing that the pain that was inflicted on Lincoln Ozaba when he says that their own imperfections killed them, that the Vians are using the fears, the insecurities, the uh, shortcomings of these people uh, uh, against them. Almost, I hate to say it, like the way the Gorgon was using the fears of, of the Enterprise crew against them when he took over the Enterprise. So I think you've made a much better explanation of this than I think actually exists, because <laughs> I don't think this makes sense, because they're, they're saying it was their imperfections that killed them. Right. But they ha would have no problem with McCoy dying at the end of the episode, right? Sure. Until Kirk convinces them to not let McCoy die. Right. And so was it McCoy's imperfections that killed him? Uh, well, I think that when the Vines were torturing him, they were using whatever whatever imperfections, whatever shortcomings, whatever fears that See, he I don't had. Think that's, yeah, I don't think that's in this episode because – well, and this is – I'll just say what my objection is. Is like the basic idea here that we're dealing with is that Jem on some fundamental level lacks compa enough compassion and self-sacrifice to be worthy of saving, right? That's the yep, basic that's idea. Right. That's the gist of it. And the goal is that through demonstrating uh, how self-sacrificing and compassionate and great our guys are, that she will learn that lesson from them. Right, right. Which means that these other guys weren't convincing enough. Their imperfections must have been that they weren't convincing enough to Jem to save them, right? Uh, well, okay. So a couple things here. Okay, so first yeah. of all, uh, I think you're right. Uh I think maybe my explanation is much better than what the writers had in mind. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I have to say, <laughs> but I have to say that it actually does kind of make sense because again, you're not seeing anything actually hit their bodies while they're being tortured. Uh it could have really just been that that the the uh uh the the psychological imperfections of of each one of these subjects was was used against them and brought to the fore by the the, the mental uh, power of this device used by the vines. Now, in the case of Lincoln Ozaba, Lincoln Ozaba are not Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Sure. So I'm not sure if either Link or Ozaba, uh, A, made it that far to try to get wrap their head around what was really going on, that Jem is being used as a uh, an experiment to make sure that her race is worthy of being saved, and even if Lincoln Ozaba didn't make it that far, I'm pretty sure that they don't have the negotiating, the diplomatic skills of, of James Kirk when it comes to making them see the light or making Jem see sure. the light. So, so I think that's why they didn't make it. So let me put this, my statement a different way. Okay. The Vians are terrible people. Sure. And the answer of, oh, it was their imperfections that killed them. It's like, no, you killed them. <laughs> like, <laughs> to be real clear, you tortured them to death. 
in the hopes that Jem would save them, that is still murdering somebody. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, like, absolutely. Like the the and so it wasn't their imperfections that killed them. You grabbed them and tortured them to death. <laughs> like, at the same time, no, I I completely agree with you. But sure, the Vians are are not nice guys. But look at what they're doing. They have the power to save an entire planet mm-hmm. from the destruction of the Minaran star. You could say they were maybe had the power to preserve an entire planet. Okay, sure. But they were preservers of some but, kind. Okay. Oh, I, I see what you did there. But if you go back to the Malkotians, mm-hmm. inspector of the gun, what were the Malkotians doing? They were using the imperfections of Kirk and the crew, not necessarily Spock, against them. The imperfections being their own violent history. Sure. Then you have the Gorkin. I never thought I would ever refer back to and the children shall lead this much <laughs> ever again. But the Gorkin kind of did the same thing. I, I think the execution of that in that episode was was really poorly done. In this case with the empath, Steve, I think that the that one line, their own imperfections killed them, is a line that that we never it's never sort of paid off. You know, what we're this discussion now is it's my justification of saying, well, what do they mean right. by that? Well, I think that they mean literally like what happened in Spectre of the Gun, what happened in Then the Children Shall Eat. Um, but in a very different way, in a in a much more obviously very, very violent way because it's ripping ripping the insides of Kirk and McCoy when they're being tortured. But I think that's the gist of it. I think it's a line that that, you know, they they could have sort of paid it off or they could have gone deeper. And in which that would have made it very similar to Spectre and the Gun, and then the Children Shall Eat. But uh, that's kind of kind of where I'm going with it. <laughs> yeah, I think Kirk and Spock are really good. Spock is really good at reading Kirk's mind and knowing, hey, you're distracting. I'm moving in with that uh, famous Spock neck pinch. It's it it works real well. Time is short. Yes, your time is running out. The sun is about to nova. When it does, it'll destroy you, this planet. And this insane torture chamber. That's why they made a great team. Kirk moved right in to uh, set up what he wanted Spock to do. And Spock went right in and did it. And he gave the FSNP, the famous Spock neck pinch. So here's the thing. At this point in the original version, Spock was going to give Law a judo chop. Hmm. Leonard Nimoy, when he read this, said, That's not what Spock would do. And this was part of the reason why John Ehrman did not have a good time working particularly with Shatner and Nimoy on The Mm -hmm. Empath. Filming was actually supposed to start on the bridge, but on the very first day, Steve, just like they did with Is There in Truth No Beauty, Shatner and Nimoy kind of pulled a rebellion. They said, we have problems here. They had problems with the script. And this time, even DeForest Kelly joined in on the descent with the script problems. So not only did they have problems, but they were also after the experience uh, of the Idic and Roddenberry on Is There in Truth No Beauty and generally feeling that Roddenberry left them high and dry. They were being overprotective of their characters. And John Ehrman said, it doesn't surprise me 
that that happened with Shatner and Nimoy because they were trying to exert their power with everybody. They knew their characters. So when you had an idea, they would simply say, oh, no, my character wouldn't do that. They just didn't want to know from people like us. And even Alan Bergman, who plays one of the Vians, later said, yes, Shatner and Nimoy seemed to be in a conflict. They struggled over better camera positions and made life difficult for the director. Mm. I can't help wondering if part of this also is we're coming off of And the Children Shall Lead. Is that you just had a terrible episode where they cast a non-actor to play a part. Shatner and Nimoy had very little to do in that episode. And I can totally see them going next week. We're yeah, we're 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 not gonna let this kind of thing happen. Right, right, right. Um, but they do manage to, we think take out this Vian, they get his hand device and then nope he's not knocked out at all which i love i love the touch that they that they faked getting knocked out but yeah it's a great camera angle too like you see them both walk into the frame with their backs to the camera and then they look at each other like this was part of the plan there's a passageway we find to the surface we head up it's super windy we try calling the enterprise they're out of range we say well let's head to the research station that's where a search party would be they start running there uh, Jem is exhausted. And then as they get to the research station, there is a very happy looking Scotty and a couple of red guys waving and they're like, hey, they're there. Now, I, I think this is actually once they get to the surface of of the Minara 2, uh, the, the second planet in the Minara so, uh, system there, like it's it's, you know, you're getting closer to the star going supernova. The planet is unstable. It's in its death throes. And as they're running, and by the way, they ran six kilometers to the research station pretty fast. Yeah, it's but, true. You know, and in the earlier version of this uh, scene, Scotty was supposed to be joined by Chekhov and Uhura. Chekhov and Uhura uh, didn't really need to be there. So uh, Justman said, let's just save money and have just Scotty yeah. be there with a couple of red shirts. So that's what they did. I think the whole thing, I think this whole sequence on the surface is weird and it's, I'm not sure what purpose it serves because if the whole, if the goal is to show Jem self-sacrifice and I don't know how this sequence on the surface is accomplishing that goal. They clearly let them go on purpose. They clearly create the Scotty illusion on purpose, but I don't know how it is going to achieve this, you know, accomplish what they want to accomplish. Well, maybe because they were saying how, in the in for Lincoln Ozaba, their own fears or their own imperfections kill them. Maybe they're deliberately trying to give Kirk, Spock, and McCoy hope so that when the time comes for their torture, that will make it more effective to use their own imperfections against them. I, I think you're reaching, but I'm gonna again, I think you're doing better work than the screenplay so did in reaching. explaining this I'm stuff. So trying to defend this episode. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there's this weird moment of Kirk seeing the Vians and turning towards them while Jem, Spock, and McCoy continue to head towards Scotty. And they see him coming, and there's uh, it's interesting that the Vians sort of there's a little gesture of like, okay, hit him with a thing. And they hit Kirk with like the slow-mo ray. Yeah, I, this is a weird scene. It's weird. It's really weird. Like they slow him down and it's hard to tell if he's in pain or if he's just like being drugged and just totally out of it. I think it looks really cool to see the scene slow down and see Kirk like, you know, just go in slow motion. And again, the the score, the music during this moment is really effective. Uh, I, I think that 
the overall, the look and the way the scene plays out is, is so cool that I'm okay with not really knowing what kind of sense it makes. <laughs> what, what's weird is what I think they did was they had Shatner run in slow motion, but then also film it at fast speed so that they could be, you know, played back in slower motion. So right. it's right. the combo of, of Shatner going, I will get you. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they slow that down and it does make it look really weird. And as they're, they're watching the vines say, their will to survive is great. They love life greatly to struggle so. The prime ingredients. What I really do like about this episode, and we've talked about this before, we talked about this with, with our good friend Ralph Sinensky, that when you have a good episode that slowly drops information, deepening the mystery, then that's because it keeps you wondering. I mean, of course, we know where it's going to go. But in this case, like you are deepening the mystery. So wait, the Vians are impressed by what they're seeing in Kirk and in Spock and McCoy. Uh, the will to survive is great. The prime ingredient that they need seen in gem in order to validate her race and save her race. We're not there yet, but we're slowly getting there. And that's something that I just think that in the case of some of the very best work of Gene Kuhn, we're seeing a little bit of that with the empath. You know what my th- I would have done? Move this scene before they get beamed into the and meet Jem. So this is before, like in the t- don't don't have them get transported to the dark area in the teaser. Have this thing happen, and they they put Kirk, Spock, and McCoy up against something, and are impressed with them. And then they say, "Oh, they're you know their de- desire to survive. They must love life." Yes, these will be perfect specimens. The others failed, but these could work. Yeah, and then you transport them in, and then you meet Jem. I think mm-hmm. that structure would have made this make more sense. You know yeah, what I mean? No, I hear you. Yeah, that makes sense. But McCoy and Spock turn the corner and there is Scotty still happily waving and then he disappears. Where did they go? And what does that scene remind you of, Steve? Um, huh. So maybe something from the cage. I don't know. What does it uh, remind me of? You no, know, just throwing that out there. You are absolutely right. The scene of the survivors encampment in the mm, cage. Sure which gave the Enterprise crew hope. And now you have the Enterprise crew seeing the hope of the of the rescue party. And then just like that, it disappears, just like the trick the the Telosians pulled in the cage. And Kirk is still in super slow motion. <laughs> and then finally they go back to normal speed and McCoy and Spock show up. We have decided that one specimen will be sufficient. You will come with us. What about the others? We have no interest in them. They may go. And Jem takes McCoy's hand and they exit, or they start to walk away, and they disappear. What happened to my men? They are safe. One specimen, you said one specimen. What happened to my men? Indeed, the prime ingredient. Where are they? Tell me. The Vines are really manipulative. They are. They're, they're, I mean, look, they, they have their plan, and they've really thought this through. And like to trick Kirk and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all we need is you. We'll let them go. And then as soon as Kirk agrees to go with them, they take Spock, McCoy and Jim and they basically put them back where they where they started. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, this is where it's like 
in in a really really tight screenplay if you go back once the twists have been revealed like if you think of like the sixth sense where there's a big twist at the end and then you go back and watch the movie again right. and the movie totally everything's like oh this is so cool yeah yeah this doesn't quite work that way because oh, the more God. i think about like wait why did the vians why did they do this why did they just lie to kirk and immediately show him that they were lying to him it's uh, like what was the point there I, i'm gonna go back to that line about the imperfections that they're using the doubts that that the three of them now have because the vians are kind of messing with them they're using that against them and again I'm reading into this. I'm trying yeah. to defend this episode. <laughs> um, and uh, But they use their thingy and Kirk now disappears. And we cut back to the bridge and the Enterprise where we just basically have a very quick scene that says we're not going to be able to make it back to the planet for a while because of these, you know, solar f- flares. Do you suppose our lighting party could be in any danger? That's not likely. The planet's atmosphere will give them ample protection. And if I know Captain Kirk, he'll be more worried about us than we are about him. And clearly, Scotty judged that situation quite wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Cut to Kirk hanging from some chains. The way they hang him, by the way, is always looks weird because it's very clear they have a line on him that's holding him up. He's not actually being held by his wrists. And it means he's hanging in this very odd way. And and from the back, it's not even Shatner. It's uh, Shatner's stunt double, Paul Baxley. Mm -hmm. Is the mm. one hanging there from from the, the the other side, but this is where the episode gets disturbing. I I hate seeing our favorite characters tortured, and what they're doing to Kirk, what they're going to do to McCoy, and we we only see that bit with McCoy a little. We see the aftermath of it, but like if you go forward to Plato's stepchildren, you have an entire act which is filmed around the torture of Kirk and Spock. And and in that case, that's to me what makes Plato's Stepchildren such an uncomfortable episode to watch. And that discomfort is on display right now because I just, it's the, you know, season three is very violent. There's a lot of, a lot of heavy violent stuff going on in season three. I get that Fred Freiberger wanted to pump up the action and everything, but, uh, but you know, you're really seeing a lot of harm come to, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. What is it you want to know? We seek no information, as you mean. Your civilization is yet too immature to have knowledge of value to us. You don't need any knowledge from us, yet you're willing to kill for it. Is that what happened to Link and Osama? We did not kill them. Their own fears killed them. There you go. Again. I know. You, I, yeah, I'm not buying this at all. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> that you keep hitting it, but it doesn't make sense. How did their fears kill them? What killed them is Jem didn't save them after they were tortured. Well, right, right. But but they got to that point because the Vians were using their fears against them. I don't think it's I don't think it's in there. Okay. I, uh, I hear you. I, 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 get I it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> because, well, because we hear that what happens to Kirk is something like the Ben's. Right. You know, right. with nitrogen bubbles, that doesn't have anything to do with your fears. That's just what they did to him. On so- Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, I'll stop hitting this thing. <laughs> um, now we want you to reveal to us your courage and strength of will. What is it you hope to prove? If my death is to have any meaning, at least tell me what I'm dying for. That's a good line. That's a great line. Mm-hmm. If you live, you will have your answer. Which is also true. And who is observing all of this but Jem. 
and they yeah. begin to torture Captain Kirk. And Jem is looking on with uh, fear and compassion, but she's not doing anything yet. And we're back with Spock and McCoy, and now the passageway that they had found easily before has disappeared. And then Kirk appears and immediately goes kind of face down. Uh, no, Kirk is in bad shape. And the, again, the staging is so interesting because you have Jem way in the foreground, you have Kirk in the midground, you have Spock and McCoy way in the background. And again, this is what Ralph Ralph Sinensky didn't didn't agree with this term, but this is what I will call very theatrical staging. There's no reason. They're there because it looks really cool for the camera, you know, mm -hmm. in those positions. And it does look really cool. It does. Um, they got the force fields around them. And, yep. uh, you know, Jem runs away and McCoy goes, help him, help, help, you know, because he's in great pain. And McCoy yep. knows that he can help, that she can help him. And she reluctantly softens and then heads towards him. She puts his hand on him. I agree. I like the music a lot in this episode. Yeah, the music is really good. You know, he's kind of aware of her and she sees the scars on his wrist from the chains and then they appear on her wrist and then they disappear and then she falls down and McCoy and Spock are released. Is this the first major healing that she's done? Major, like, did, yes. I mean, the, yeah. the bit with Kirk's forehead was just a, a tease of what was to come. And this Did she do anything with the other guys? The, uh, with Lincoln Ozaba? Yeah. Not enough because yeah. they died. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if she did I don't anything. think she did. Yeah, I don't think she did much of anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, and this is where, where I do think the idea of the fears killed them. What makes more sense to me is that Link and Ozaba were totally not self-sacrificing, totally selfish, threw each other under the bus. Yeah, torture him. Take him. Don't take me. Yeah. And so because of that behavior, Jem was not inspired to help either of them, and that's why they died. Absolutely. I'm down with that complete empathy she must be a totally functional empath her nervous system actually connected to yours to counteract the worst of your symptoms and with her strength she virtually sustained your body's physiological reaction she was weakened i could feel it and then the big question is 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 her life in danger from saving kirk it is because she doesn't have the physical strength to withstand what kirk has withstood but Kirk survived that. So if Jem takes on all of that pain, will she survive it the way that Kirk was able to survive it? In this case, she was, but not like, like, you know, Kirk is, you know, he's obviously a, a very, very fit person and Jem is, is a little more fragile. So I think that the level of pain and torture that they inflicted on Kirk for Jem to absorb that, it's going to have a bigger impact on her that could threaten her life. Well, and I think it's, you know, this is an episode that deals with self-sacrifice. Yeah. So I think part of what they're setting up, which I think they do pretty well is we don't know is that in order for Jem to prove to the Vians that she and her species are savable, deserving, she has to go in to heal someone not knowing that she could die. She yeah. might die. You know what I mean? The, 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 the theme of sacrifice is not just on the part of Jim. The theme of sacrifice is displayed by everyone. Yes. When Kirk agrees to go with the Vians in exchange for letting Kirk, uh, McCoy and Spock and Jem go, the way that uh, Jem now helps Kirk and later helps McCoy, although it's a lot harder for her, the way that 
Spock tells McCoy, I'm in command now. I'm going to go with the Vians. And the way that McCoy gives Spock the hypo so he can go with the Vians and save Spock. And the way that McCoy won't let Jem save him because she'll die. I mean, everyone is displaying sacrifice here. Everyone is showing these elements of the of the prime specimen and it's a small cast i i think this is the element of this episode that really works everything you just described all these ideas of sacrifice and what it means and how it inspires someone else i think all that totally works yeah it Um, it really does here are the vians back again again in very interesting staging where one is in the foreground and the other in the background we find it necessary to have the cooperation of one of your men in our efforts. We will not cooperate. And then the Vians create a choice. When we resume our interrogations, you will decide which of your men we shall use. It is essential. There is an 87% chance that the doctor will die. And while Commander Spock's life is not in danger, the possibility is 93% that he will suffer brain damage resulting in permanent insanity. So that brings us to the end of Act 2. But Steve, we are seeing a situation now. I wonder if you're about to ask the question I was about to ask you. Is this about the immunity syndrome? That would have been the question, yes. This is a very similar choice to the immunity syndrome. Which one do you find more compelling, the immunity syndrome one or this one? I find... I find this one a tougher decision, and here's why. In the immunity syndrome, Kirk has to make a decision between sending either Spock or McCoy off in the shuttlecraft to get readings of the giant space amoeba to save the Enterprise. Yes. In this case, he's basically deciding which one of them is just going to die. Well, and be tortured. Like the, I mean, I think they're very different because one is – we got to save the ship. Yeah. You know, right, that's a right. positive thing. There's no positive here. I agree. There's, that's it. That's, you it. know, right. Well, and the idea of the slow torture of one of your friends rather than their heroic sacrifice to save the ship. It's just way w- worse. And the other thing is the way this play, you and I both had problems with some of the McCoy particular behavior and immunity syndrome. Yes. The way this one plays out, I think is way stronger in terms of It is of way stronger. And, and and it's way stronger to the point that in addition to the nobility that McCoy displays, DeForest Kelly hailed the empath as his favorite Star Trek episode because yeah, of the way it was shot. Yes. And it's easy to see why. It's really easy to see why. He just – he comes off as so noble, so much dignity yeah, and the way – like even Jem, who he just met yesterday, he's willing to sacrifice himself for her. We come back in Act Three. Spock is still working on this device, and he's starting to figure out a little bit about it. And then he says, "I recorded my principles and theories on the tricorder, Doctor. Should the Vians return, there is sufficient data for you and the Captain to complete the adjustments." Why is Spock saying this to McCoy? Because Spock is assuming. That he's mm-hmm. going to be the one to go with the Vians. I'm not a mechanic. I couldn't get that thing to work no matter how many notes you left. Possibly not. But you and the captain together will be able to do so. And what's great, and in terms of the way it's shot, is that Jem is watching all of this. Mm-hmm. Jem know, is because, observing. Right. Yeah. She's, she is observing 
such great compassion and she likes what she sees. Yeah. And she goes, Oh, those are great qualities to have. Yeah. And maybe I should have them and bring them to my people. If there are any decisions to be made, I'll make them. That's what you think. <laughs> yeah. And then there is McCoy with his hypo and he gives Kirk a shot. I don't need I'm still chief medical officer in Enterprise. I'll tell you what you need and when you need it. I love the way the scene plays out. You know, Kirk is like pissed and then he starts to get tired and then he falls asleep. And yeah. McCoy's like, I'm in command in that situation. And Spock asks how long he's be asleep, and McCoy gives him an answer, and he and Spock says, You simplify the situation considerably. How? While the captain is asleep, I am in command. When the Vians return, I shall go with them. I have a question. Yeah. Do you think McCoy anticipated this? He's acting surprised. You mean if I hadn't given him that shot? Precisely. The choice would have been the captain's. Now it is mine. Well, I think that he didn't think this through because initially it was supposed to be the captain to make that choice. But what he should have thought was, well, Spock is next in command. Of course he's going to be the one to say, Doc, you stay here. I'm going with the Vians. But I do think that he clearly had a backup plan because he because what he just what he just did with Kirk. Well, I it's funny. I think based on watching the episode that McCoy is genuinely surprised when Spock says, "Hey, I'm in command now." But part of me also goes, "It's kind of cooler if he already planned to give both of them shots and it's just pretending to be surprised at this moment." Well, in order yeah. to lure Spock into a false sense of security before he knocks him out as well. Well, for all these years, I definitely felt like McCoy was genuinely surprised. Yeah, I, I agree. So because Jem had been observing this interaction between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, where McCoy put Kirk to sleep, and now Spock is saying, I'm going to go. Spock looks different and acts different from Kirk and McCoy. So she goes over to Spock, puts his her hand like on his shoulder, right above his chest, and Spock is surprised by this level of physical contact. And in that moment, this is where I think Catherine Hayes just gives a really beautiful performance because she obviously has no dialogue. It's all in her expression and her facial expression. And what she is feeling right now, Steve, what she is feeling right now from Spock is a level of love, a level of warmth a level of empathy, and a level of compassion that not even Spock's closest friends, Kirk and McCoy, have ever felt. Mm. She, Jem, is reaching Spock closer and deeper than anyone else ever has. And that smile on her face tells us that Spock is truly good. The best of the best. I like that a lot, Scott. I I think you described that beautifully, and I think that is a, it is a really really cool moment. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and he gives Spock the shot, who s- stands and turns and says, "Your action is highly unethical. My decision stands." But he doesn't stand. He goes down. So Spock and Kirk are now both out, and that's when the vines appear. And McCoy proudly says, the "Choice has been made." Wait a minute. I have a question. Yes. Is it a coincidence that the Vians appeared at this moment, or were they waiting for them, for the three of them, 
to make the decision themselves. They were absolutely observing the whole thing. I agree. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this is, I totally get why DeForest Kelly likes this episode. I think this is among McCoy's most heroic moments. For sure it is. 100% yeah. yes. You stay here with my friends, they'll take care of you. I mean, it's such a beautiful moment. And McCoy, who just has this really sort of rough exterior, is showing so much love and compassion for Jem that when McCoy disappears with the vines, that close-up on Jem's face, she is shedding a tear. Now McCoy is hanging from the chains, not shirtless. Yeah, why is <laughs> I was wondering, like, how come Kirk is shirtless, but McCoy isn't? All right, it's all right. <laughs> I don't think it's because of the vines. I think it's because of the producers of the network. Right, right, right. You know? yeah. Doctor, please understand that if there was any other way to accomplish our purpose, get on with it. Again, this is another bit of the mystery. Why are they doing this? Another so, advancement. They're saying, we don't want to do this. We have to do this. But we still don't know why yet. Here, here's a thought for the Vians. Maybe save the entire civilization and then teach them compassion. But there's two. <laughs> what, which civilization do they choose? They have, they have enough power to save one of two planets. Which one deserves to be saved? But that's not in. I mean, like, the, we don't see this other civilization. We don't know we anything don't. about them. But clearly there's another planet in that system which is inhabited with with the intelligent life, but maybe they were already there and they went, yeah, we're not just feeling it. Let's, let's try the other planet. Let's try, uh, let's see, let's see what the, this other planet is in store. So maybe let me ask this, worth saving. Okay. Let me ask this question then. All right. Jim doesn't change. She just says, I don't care about you guys at all. She doesn't heal anybody. It fails, totally fails this experiment, right? Do they save the other planet then? Probably. So what you're saying is, is that, what Kirk, Spock, and McCoy did was doom this other planet to death. Sure. Yeah. Because they showed Jem how to be more selfless, more generous, more compassionate, the, uh, the ability to put others ahead of herself. They instilled that in her, saving her race, but dooming the other race. Yeah. So, this is where this episode's weird. Well, you know? sure, sure. They could have been like, they, they they could have been like, well, actually, you know what? This other race actually does deserve because they're better. But, you know, we don't see what this other race is. All we see are the vines with one representation of Jem's, Jem's people. Yeah, I, I, it, this is, I, it's just weird. And it's like, can you imagine like, okay, you've got a bunch of kids and they're acting like jerks and you go, well, I'm just going to torture a bunch of people and see if I can get these kids to not act like jerks. And if they don't stop acting like jerks, I'm going to let them all die <laughs> rather than saving them or letting this other bunch of kids die somewhere else. It's like, this is the vines are weird. Yeah. The, look, uh, the vines are, they look, it's, it's a, it's Sophie's choice Two two planets, two races with millions, maybe even billions of inhabitants. And they're going to save one. They're going to be the ones to decide. Which one is worthy of saving? The Vians. And they're they're going about it in a way that is extremely painful physically. Yeah, it's 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 a whole bunch of weird stuff. Yeah, no, that, it but is. it does, like I said, it does bring us to some interesting ideas. Uh, but it is some weird stuff. Why did you let them do it? 
I was convinced in the same way you were, Captain, by the good doctor's hypo. <laughs> then we have some very nonsensical uh, lines about this device, which is a control unit, but not a control mechanism, whatever mm-hmm. that means. What disturbs me is why the Vions let us keep it. Fascinating. They must have known we were capable of comprehending this control and making use of it. And that we would use it to escape. The only logical assumption is that they wish to let us go. And they keep McCoy. Spock has gotten this device to work and goes, There should be sufficient energy to transfer us to the Enterprise. Will it take us to McCoy? If you so desire. Kirk, they could have gone to the Enterprise. Yep. And Kirk, Kirk's immediate reaction, you know, without missing a beat, was, will it take us to McCoy? But I, I like the way that Jem, like, gathers their belongings. Yeah. And, you know, she brings it to Kirk. and She, she gathers McCoy's belongings. I think that's part of the key. Oh, okay. okay. Is that I think she's voicing her opinion of we need to save McCoy. And that is a step in the right direction for yes. her and her people. And I love Kirk notices this. And he gives her a look and he just says, The best defense is a strong offense. And I intend to start offending right now. And then we're at the lab, and there is Bones hanging from the chains, looking all kinds of messed up. Bones. And as he is swinging towards the camera, he goes more and more out of focus with a very dramatic music sting. And it is an extremely effective and emotional and disturbing end to the end of Act 3. Back in Act 4, they... They lower him down. Jem is having a huge reaction to him, obviously feeling a lot of emotions about what's happened to McCoy. And Spock is examining him. I like how all of this is done. I like Dr. Spock in this circumstance. Dr. Spock? Dr. Spock. Well, he's acting like the physician. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> how is he? Severe heart damage. Signs of congestion in both lungs. Evidence of massive circulatory collapse. Basically, what we hear is that McCoy is dying. He's right, Jim. Being a doctor has his drawbacks. I always wondered why I... <coughs> I think DeForest Kelly plays this really well. Yep, he does. He does. And Jem is reacting to all of this as McCoy is looking really sick. Hello. It could happen anytime. The correct medical phrase, hey, Spock. I like that McCoy is kind to Spock. Yeah. In these moments that Spock is being kind to him, McCoy coughs and Spock cradles him in his arm and has his hand against his face. And McCoy says, I've got a good bedside manner, Spock. That's great. Yeah. No, this is, this is a, another strength of this episode is just the going back to the beginning of the series and going back to moments like in the sick bay of the enemy within between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. When Kirk is struggling to survive without his 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 dark side, yeah, yeah. Uh, from from that moment, in, early in the first season, to now as we're approaching the middle of the of the third and final season, yeah, to see the evolution of their friendship, of their relationship, the way it has deepened even further after being so strong from the very beginning, is one of the biggest strengths of why for me. And I'm sure for you too, the original series still reigns supreme as the best Star Trek series of them all. 
You know, what just occurred to me is that in the, you know, comparing it to the immunity syndrome and in the moment of Spock's possible death, they're still kind of being jerks to each other. Do you know what I mean? In immunity syndrome. And I really liked it here in the moment of McCoy's possible death. It's the opposite. Spock is being as gentle and human and emotional with McCoy as we've ever seen him. And McCoy is appreciating it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. McCoy is, is, is not fighting it. Yeah. And I think in, in this season in particular, you know, say what you want about the third season. I'm sure there's a lot to be said about it, but the, the relationship, especially between Spock and McCoy deepens some of the, uh, uh, conflict that they had like in, uh, bread and circuses and the immunity syndrome is stripped away. Like in, for the world is hollow when I have touched the sky, when Spock finds out that McCoy is dying, you know, he is very compassionate to him. Yeah, that's great. And now we get into a little bit of discussion of can Jem save him or will that cost her her life? Is she capable of doing this? If she could just strengthen him and keep him from sinking further into death, we might be able to save him. And they go towards Jem. Force field appears and then there are the vines. No interference will be permitted. This is the final moment of their test and Spock and Kirk cannot interfere. The purpose that brought us together. What purpose can all this serve except the fulfillment of some need of yours? Basically, Kirk is going, you guys must be getting off on this in some way. Surely beings as advanced as yourselves know that your star system will soon be extinct. Your sun will nova. We know. And you also know that the millions of inhabitants on its planets are doomed. That is why we are here. This is the flip. This is Mm -hmm. that classic display of a pivot that has defined Star Trek at its very best. Like, what is the horde in The Devil in the Dark? Oh, we were wrong. It's a mother protecting its young. What is the companion in Metamorphosis? Oh, it's a female in love with the man. And the way the episode flips. Now, it doesn't flip quite as dramatically and as extreme in a way of utter brilliance, that Devil in the Dark, and metamorphosis do, but it is still a flip that you go, oh, wow, they are actually trying to do something really good, save a planet and make sure that the planet they can save is worthy of being saved. Now, Gene Kuhn was already gone from the show. He was already doing It Takes a Thief. He was still contributing stories and screenplays to season three under the pseudonym Lee Cronin, But I feel like this screenplay written by a first-timer and only-timer, Joyce Muscat, is actually worthy of what has made Star Trek so great, that great flip. And it is – I appreciate this flip so much more after we have seen these flips in some of the other episodes we talked about on this podcast. So here's here's my feeling, which is that – the, it, I think this both demonstrates exactly what you're saying, and I think it also shows why this is a third season episode and not a first or second season episode. <laughs> because in the case of the Horda, once you the Horda is a perfect example of that sixth sense we were talking thing we were yep. talking about, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. once you know the twist, oh, she's a mother protecting her young, all of her behavior makes perfect sense. The Vians do not. The Vines don't make perfect sense. Like it's like wait. We have this twist. Oh, you're actually going to save the planet. It's like, 
you're only going to save this planet based on one person making the choice to sacrifice their own life to save someone else. And if they don't do that thing, that would be difficult for you to do. It'd be difficult for me to do. You're going to kill million, let millions of people die. Like it just doesn't make you. I just go back to the vines are terrible people, you know? (laughs) Uh, But this is what they explain is that this whole thing has been a laboratory and they're all test subjects and they created the circumstances that was necessary and that basically they needed people that were as awesome as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to teach Jen. How will the death of our friend serve this purpose? His death will not serve it. But her willingness to give her life for him will. You were her teachers. We were. And they really do compliment our heroes. What could she learn from us? Your will to survive. Your love of life. Your passion to know. They're recorded in our being. Everything that is truest and best in all species of beings has been revealed by you. Those are the qualities that make a civilization worthy to survive. And what a compliment. What I also, I really do like the idea. We've talked about what are the Star Trek philosophies? Like we have to strive forward to the beat of the drum or philosophies of diversity or philosophies of exploration of risk of all those things and now what the vines are saying is self-sacrifice is among the most important values of empathy and self-sacrifice and empathy is you know gene roddenberry loved this episode Hmm. because he felt that empathy was one of the most important character traits of humanity and here it is on display in in this episode um, just maybe go, Oh, and this goes back. You know, the thing I said way at the beginning of like, they should have shown her being selfish in order to show her changing later on having an episode about someone who gains empathy when from the beginning you are calling her an empath, that that is her most essential identity, right? Actually works against what you're trying to do with this episode. You know what I mean? Well, that I, just like we said at the top of the episode, that's not what an empath is. Exactly. But while they're talking, Jem approaches McCoy. That is most significant. An instinct new to the essence of her being is generating. Compassion for another is becoming part of her functioning life system. And she touches McCoy's face and the scars, which is good makeup, by the way. I think the bruising on McCoy's face is really good. Disappear from his face and appear on hers. And you can see she starts to cry. You can see the pain really hit her in this moment. So so when Jem absorbs the boils from from McCoy and, you know, before with Kirk. So actress Catherine Hayes had to be strapped to a board in order to be kept absolutely still while they slowly added the makeup motion by motion for the stop motion photography to be filmed in this progression. And it apparently took eight hours to do all of this. And in the earlier, one of the earlier versions of the, of the story, Jem was going to die in act four. Oh, wow. But it was Bob Justman uh, who suggested this killing her in act four. But Joyce Muscat said, no, she should live because she's making the ultimate sacrifice. She should live and learn something. And if she doesn't live, she's not going to be able to bring these yeah. traits to her people to 
justify them being saved. I mean, I think the idea that there's, I totally agree that they, she has to live because the idea they're going is like somehow this civilization has existed without compassion and self-sacrifice. Yeah. And that therefore she's going to transmit that to them, that she's going to be, that it's going to spread from her. So she has to live, right? Of course she has to live. Yeah. And then we see her move away to save herself. She's afraid. She's saving herself. She does not yet have the instinct to save her people. And then we jump to this conclusion. They say, Captain, Dr. McCoy's life is not dependent on Jem. The Vians, too, must be capable of saving his life. Which I don't know how we got to that conclusion, but they say, yeah, it's true. (laughs) And you cannot let him die. His death is not important. We must wait to see whether her instinct for self-sacrifice has become stronger than her instinct for self-preservation. And it's like... To have the dudes who are trying to teach compassion and self-sacrifice be torturing people to death and then say his death is not important. <laughs> Clearly, they have not learned the lesson they are trying to teach to Jen. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and then I love this moment. She gets back up. She goes to McCoy and he says, don't touch me. Stay away. Don't let her touch me. She'll die. And then this line from McCoy, this is one of his great lines, I think. I can't destroy life. Even if it's to save my own. I can't now, you know that. I can't let you do it. Wow. Heroic and absolutely selfless. Um, uh, incredible sacrifice. You know, it's not even like it's for Kirk or Spock. It's for Jem. And he's still displaying that level of compassion and sacrifice. And Kirk is desperately trying to get through the force field and Spock says, you know, the harder you work, the stronger the force field is. And it, and then Kirk says, yeah, I know. And I'm like, well, <laughs> if you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Weren't you listening? <laughs> um, and they say, okay, you have to get rid of all your emotions and they calm down. And suddenly Spock is now free, I guess. Cause he is able from like specter the gun to control his emotions far more than Kirk. He Gets out, he grabs the other controller from the Vians, and now Kirk is free. You cannot use our powers to change what is happening. And now Kirk gets to make a speech. I love this moment. Yeah. This is just a great, classic Kirk moment. He takes the other device, and he hands them both over to the two Vians. If death is all you understand, here are four lives for you. We will not leave our friend. You've lost the capacity to feel the emotions you brought Jem here to experience. Shatner's delivery, he's got this down by now. He really does. He had it from the beginning. He's always been this way. Here you go. You know, we're all going to make the ultimate sacrifice. All, he's going to sacrifice all four of them for the Vians to finally see the light. Don't understand what it is to live. Love and compassion are dead in you. You're nothing but intellect. And they take all this in, and there is a long look and a very long pause. I think it's all played really, really well. I agree. I agree. And it's really interesting that, in fact, it's the Vians who have to change. Yes, Jem has to change, but actually, to, to win the day, the Vians have to change. You know, the Vians were so hell-bent on, this, on doing this that they lost the will for themselves like they lost the feeling that they were trying to get out of gym well and here's the interesting thing i think is that you know we've talked about all these super powerful species that are more powerful than us and they seem to exist on a continuum where 
you have the Organians and maybe Sargon and his people. They're sort of the most advanced, you know, yep. and maybe the Charlie X people. Um, and there's the Metrons and mm -hmm. people like that. And that there are these other people like the Shoreleave people and maybe uh, Trelane that need physical, mechanical things to do the stuff that they do. And some of these people, like the Organians, go in a really good direction and they figure their stuff out. And some of these go in bad directions, like the Telosians. Yes, yeah, sir. And it seems, I believe, that the Vians, up until this moment, were actually on the path to become like the Telosians. Uh, and it is point. what Kirk does at this moment that takes them off of that path and maybe sends them on the path to be more like the Organians. Well said. And agree 100%. And so they heal McCoy and they help a gem up and they carry her and they walk away and say, Farewell. And then rather than bonging and disappearing, they shrink away into the blackness. I think that's a really effective departure. Uh, the image of Lal picking Jem up, Beauty and the Beast, mm. you know, he picks her up. In a, in a show of compassion that the compassion that he was trying to bring out of Jim through the torture of Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And now he is showing that compassion that he lost after Kirk's speech showed him the way it's such a really emotional ending, the way they pick her up and they shrink off and the camera pans back from Kirk, Spock and McCoy and yeah, I, don't, I don't know how they got back to the Enterprise, but they're back on the Enterprise. <laughs> well, I assume the solar flares ended and the Enterprise came back in orbit. And Yeah, yeah. Strange. What is puzzling you, Captain? I'm not puzzled, Mr. Spock. I'm awed. I'm with you, Captain. She awed me. No, no, I wasn't thinking of Jem. I was thinking of that fantastic element of chance that out in limitless space... We should come together with Jim. I don't get this. I, it's an, it's uh, I, yeah, no, I like that. That so the Vians teleported Jim's planet to safety. Right, it could have been so far out into the galaxy that the odds of the Enterprise or any other starship, for that matter, running into Jim's planet are really, really slim. Space is huge. Sure, galaxy is huge. Sure, I, I like what? What are the odds that we would? Like come into contact with Jem's planet again, like like that would be just such an amazing thing, and and this is where the episode takes such a deep emotional turn for me. Hmm. Scotty says, "From what little you've told me, I would say that she was a pearl of great price." What, Scott? Do you not know the story of the merchant? This always gets me. Always, the merchant. Who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the full quote from the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew 13, 45 and 46 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and found and sold all that he had and bought it. And... You know, every time I watch this episode, after such carnage, such such violence, such pain, at the same time, showing so much sacrifice 
on the will of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and ultimately, Jem, that you had this beautiful moment. You know, you had this beautiful, like she was a pearl of great price. And I got to tell you, you know, I know the episode is called The Empath, but they should have changed the title of this episode to A Pearl of Great Price. That should have been the title of this episode, A Pearl of Great Price. What is it about it of this moment? What does it make you think of? What is it that moves you so much about it? Wow. It's a great, it's a great question, Steve. Um, Cause you've had a stronger emotional reaction to this moment than anything else we've discussed in the entire podcast. So it obviously is hitting something real deep. And if you're not comfortable talking about it, I totally no, get no, it. No, no. Um, I think part of it is, I think part of it is Steve, just the, the, the shift in tone that, and, and Star Trek has always had great moments, uh, you know, fantastic episodes where there was such a dramatic shift in tone that worked. And I think this is a big shift in tone. And, you know, just that after all that, that it's Scotty who wasn't even there. You know, he wasn't there. He didn't experience what Kirk, Spock, and McCoy felt. But he he heard the story. And he's just able to just... So, oh, okay, you know, like he's just able to process it much, much quickly and see that Jim was this pearl of great price that that he saw in her just from hearing about it from, you know, probably the captain's log or, or they're, you know, just talking about what happened. And he he just sort of like sees what happened in a in a way that Kirk, Spock and McCoy did not. You know, it just occurred to me, and and what's interesting, I'm never going to watch this episode the same now because I'm going to be thinking about you in this moment, is what just occurred to me is, and this is not in the script, I'm not saying this is what the episode is saying, but what hit me as you were talking is, Jem is not the pearl of great price. The friendship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy is the pearl of great price. That's it. Is because that's what, it's that without them, Jem is doesn't have all of this and that Kirk Spock McCoy are never as strong apart as they are together. And it is their love and sense of self-sacrifice and compassion and morality and honesty and bravery. That's actually the most valuable thing in Star Trek. You're, you're so right. The pearl of great price is not necessarily Jim. The pearl of great price is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah. Because they, they, the way that they were together as a whole, greater than the sum of their parts, is what inspired Jem to be worthy of saving her people. And by titling the episode A Pearl of Great Price, you may think that it's about Jem when it's really about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah. And then we have a little sort of jokish moment where they talk about, you know, those emotions that really save the day. Perhaps the Vulcan should hear about this. Uh, Mr. Spock, can you be prevailed upon to bring them the news? Possibly, Captain. I shall certainly give the thought all the consideration it is due. And you know what? It's it's a funny moment, but I think this, this moment works. First of all, it is absolutely a coonism in an episode that had nothing to do with Gene Kuhn. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, again, that, that twist, that pivot in the episode, also worthy of Gene Kuhn. But instead of being, you know, just sort of like a ha 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 moment, you know, where they're all laughing as they're, you know, speeding off into the into the galaxy, it's a lighter way to end the episode after such a, an emotional reveal. And I got to tell you, you know, no other episode other than Metamorphosis and Is There in Truth No Beauty bring me to just emotion like this. I mean, Steve, I've seen yeah. this episode hundreds of times over almost 55 years and I watch it and I still, it still brings the feels like this, you know, right. there's something to be said about the power of a show, even in the third season when, when it was definitely not what it was in the first and second season that it could still yeah, bring me to uh, tears like this. So what did other people's, what were their reactions to this episode? Well, as I teased at the beginning of this podcast conversation, Steve Morris, director John Ehrman, you know, even though, uh, you know, the sets were so bare and, you know, only had like basically three guest stars, not including Lincoln Ozawa, this episode should have cost like way under budget, but it still right. went a little over. But it came in a little over budget. So John Ehrman, he said, it's funny because when I left, Bill Shatner and Lenny Nimoy said, well, you'll be back soon. And I said, oh, no, I won't. They said, what do you mean? And I said, I'll never do another episode of this show. I don't like working with you. And I'll, <laughs> tell, anybody, I'll tell anybody who wants to know. I went up to the office and told Bobby Justman and Freddie Freiberger, I have not enjoyed this. I like you guys, but goodbye. <laughs> I, was pretty, I was pretty angry when I left, and I, it was just demeaning. That's the director of this episode. That's a shame. Right, then. It's uh, like what we said before about how you can have episodes that were problematic, but then when you're watching it, it, it came out great. You know, yeah. and, and then you, that happens a lot in movies. You talk about this all the time on the cinephiles. Well, uh, you know, obviously, you and I both love Shatner. We both love Nimoy, but hearing about, particularly from Shatner, some of the petty stuff. Like making a TV show is hard enough and having yeah. to deal with an actor that's like, I need another close up or I need another, you know, it's just like, come on, like be, you know, let's, let's all work together. I can totally see that not being fun. Yeah. Particularly yeah. in the third season. Sure. Particularly in the third season. Meanwhile, Catherine Hayes, who played Jem, had a much different experience than John Ehrman. She said, I just had the most fun doing that episode. I worked a lot with DeForest Kelly. And you'd have to go a long way to find somebody nicer. Shatner and Nimoy were lovely to me. Not lovely to the director, but lovely to me. I could have, I could not have asked for a better treatment. We had so much fun. It really was one of the most pleasant things I've ever done. Hmm. Boris Kelly, like I had alluded to before, said this was his personal favorite episode of Star Trek. Quote, it was so dramatically done. The entire stage was blacked out in black curtains and everything was done in pen spots, the lighting. And I just thought it was so unique and the production values and the cinematography. You look around and you think, gee, what a wild way to shoot a show. And the final word goes to Gene Roddenberry, who simply said, I love the empath. Oh, cool. There you go. I think my feelings about this episode have clarified and the things that I think work about it. I think work even stronger. And the, the most important ones being 
Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and the sense of self-sacrifice and courage. I think all that's totally working. And the things that don't work about the episode, which is really the Vians, like, <laughs> like it just becomes more and more clear to me why this isn't a first or second season episode, that this is a third season episode. So I, I like it. I don't love it. I like what I like. It is one, like, I don't know. It, it might be that I never in my life watch And the Children Shall Lead Again, but I probably will watch The Empath again at some point. Yeah, you know, uh, listen, I will probably not watch And the Children Shall Lead, and I'm, I'm anticipating uh, having to watch The Mark of Gideon and The Way to Eden and Turnabout Intruder episodes I haven't seen in a long time. But, you know, again, I've always liked The Empath, uh, and I think after this conversation, the 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 strengths of this episode, which are in the Shatner, Nimoy, the Forrest Kelly performances and the friendship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the 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 way that they're all showing just so much compassion for each other. And this is an episode where whether you like the story or not, whether you like certain things about it or not, I love I love these guys so much that it makes me love the episode because they're showing the best of their traits. And again, the, the way that it was shot, the sets, the, the, uh, definitely the score. I think the score is just absolutely beautiful. Jerry Finnerman going out on a high note with his very last episode of star Trek and the empath, I think is much, much better than I think a lot of people really give it credit for. I, I'm, I really am surprised that more people don't love it or even just like it a little more. There are people who really don't like it, but I really like it. I'm glad that you like it. And I would love to hear what our enterprisers think. How do you feel about the empath? Do you, is it a polarizing episode that you love it or you hate it? You think it's okay. Let us know on our Facebook page, enterprise incidents, and let us know what you think of the empath. And you could also visit us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And of course, we've gotten so much incredible support from those of you who are listening. And we want to say again, thank you so much for those of you who subscribe to the show. For those of you who don't and you want to support the show, all you need to go do is go to the anchor link that's in the show notes. It's on YouTube. It's on all the podcast feeds. Just look at the show notes. You see a link to Anchor where you can subscribe to the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Uh, and we really appreciate it. It helps us keep this show going. Uh, and if you want to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, you could do it there where we'd love to get your reviews. You can also subscribe on Spotify and Stitcher and YouTube and a whole bunch of other places. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking about one of the great joys of doing these podcasts, Scott, with you and doing my other podcast, The Cinephiles, is that both of them afford me the opportunity to learn new stuff every week. And sometimes it means some serious research because a movie we have coming up that might be coming out just about when this episode airs is I am currently researching the life of one of my heroes, Mahatma Gandhi, so that we can do Richard Attenborough's 1982 epic film, Gandhi. And so I am deep, deep in studying one of the greatest humans in history. So that's just a true joy. And I think that'll be coming out around when this comes out on The Cinephiles. Scott, how would people reach you? Well, the Gandhi, huh? Gandhi won Best Picture for 1982, beating E.T. the Extraterrestrial. As much as I love yep. Gandhi, the movie, and the man, I still think E.T. should have won, but I digress. You can follow yeah. me on Twitter and Instagram or at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported us through Anchor, 
Steve and I love doing enterprise incidents. We really treat it as a labor of love, but a labor it is. So anything that you've been able to do or can do by supporting us on Anchor is greatly appreciated. Make sure you do follow us on our Enterprise Incidents Facebook page because we engage with our enterprisers a whole lot. We're posting things all the time on our Facebook page, so don't miss out. And again, thank you for giving us great reviews and great reactions on Apple Podcasts. If you have not yet written a review on Apple Podcasts, now is the time. Let us know what you think as we are getting really deep into the third season of Star Trek on Enterprise Incidents. What do you think of Enterprise Incidents? Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share Enterprise Incidents on your social media. Get the word out about Enterprise Incidents as we are starting to really kind of wind down this uh, look at the original series. So please do spread the word so people who have not yet found Enterprise Incidents can discover us and start at the beginning and binge and catch up to where we are now. So thank you to everyone for all of your support. Next time on Enterprise Incidents, one of the finest episodes of season three, an episode that had a lot of drama behind the scenes. And we are going to get into this deep dive conversation on the Tholian web. The Tholian web is next on Enterprise Incidents. So until next time, keep going boldly.